WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and welcome to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper, uh, filling in this week for editor and publisher Burl Schwartz. Uh, later on in the show, we're going to listen to a uh, re- pre-recorded interview uh, from our television show this week in which uh, we talked to a couple of Beatles collectors in the area who have put together quite a shrine to the band. Uh, and also, we're going to be speaking with uh, Ken Prouty, who's a uh, MSU professor of jazz studies and musicology, to talk about the Beatles' impact on America and uh, partially in celebration of the 50th anniversary of their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show and them uh, first coming to the States. Uh, we're also going to talk with Kyle Malin of the Mears Capital Newsletter to talk about the latest issues going on in the state legislature, uh, as well as Jeff Croft, who is the founder of a new Lansing uh, theater production called the Ixion Ensemble. Uh, but first up with us on the phone is Mary Cronquist. Uh, she's the Community Programs Administrator for uh, Community Mental Health. It's an organization that serves uh, eight surrounding counties, uh, people dealing with substance abuse issues who are either underinsured or uninsured or, or don't qualify for Medicaid. Uh, we spoke with Mary uh, earlier this week or last week for a story that appears in today's City Pulse about the rising tide of heroin abuse. Uh, it appears Lansing, Greater Lansing, is not alone, uh, fitting in with national trends that we're seeing of a spike um, in use of the drug. Uh, But Mary, uh, let's explore that issue a little bit. And and first off, thanks for being on City Pulse. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for asking me. No problem. Great. So can you sort of put into context um, heroin abuse today compared to, say, five years ago, um, at least what you've seen in, in the clients that your organization has dealt with? Well, there's been a significant increase in um, heroin, or actually has how we have it classified as narcotics, opioids, and heroin all kind of lumped together. And what we have seen is a very significant increase. If you, say, for example, look at um, one of the earliest years that we have numbers for, which is, and we go by fiscal years, which would be from October 1st to September 30th. So for the fiscal year of 2008, we had um, 847 admissions under um, that category of narcotics, opiates, and heroin within our eight counties. Uh, and Ingham County alone was 296. But if you look at what's happening for last fiscal year, we had um, a total of 2,212 admissions for our total eight-county region, whereas in Ingham County alone, there was 933. So if you can just see at those numbers, there are significant changes. And I just thought, since I knew I was going to be talking to you, I pulled some numbers for our first quarter of this fiscal year. Mm-hmm. And in Ingham County alone, just for the first three months of um, October, November, and December, there were 219 admissions under the category of narcotics, opioids, and heroin. Wow. So it's continuing to go up then. Yeah. Like, yeah, and, th- and those numbers that you gave us are either just shy or more than tripled uh, uh, last fiscal year than they were in 2008. So, Mary, what's what's going on here? Why is this drug making such a resurgence, or, or opiates in general? Well, it really kind of starts with our um, the issue with prescription drugs. A lot of folks that we um, work with when we do uh, our intake interview with them a significant number of them talk about how they initially were introduced to the drugs through um, someone's prescription drugs, and they then graduated from the prescription drugs into heroin. 
And heroin, unfortunately, is very available on the streets today, and it's relatively inexpensive. And as a as a health professional, um, is it ironic to you that uh, some of these problems are stemming from uh, legal drugs that can be prescribed to people? I don't know if ironic is the word that I would use, um, because we also deal with another legal drug, which is alcohol, um, and that is a we deal with you know alcoholism. So the fact that a drug starts out as legal and how it then changes into the person and they become addicted is something that we deal with whether the drug is illegal or legal. Hmm. It's the, what we, particularly with prescription drugs, it's um, helping people understand to keep their drug safe, educating the proper way of, of taking the medications and also working with the doctors and um, helping them understand how to prescribe um, and not overprescribe. Mm-hmm. So, um, when we sort of look at the numbers and, and go beyond that, and sort of ask ourselves, what can we what can we be doing um, to prevent some of this, or to sort of stem the tide? What are some of the what are some of the I guess uh, more reasonable approaches uh, to this issue that that might be able to bring some of those numbers down? Do you think? Well, there's a really good. Um, initiative that we have, particularly in Ingham County, which is the uh, Ingham County Prevention Coalition, and mm-hmm. it works as uh, the Ingham County Substance um, Abuse Prevention Coalition, and they have um, some really good um, activities that they're doing and working with the various community partners in which to help educate, uh, get the word out, um, and work with people to deal with um, reducing uh, addiction and substance use disorder mm-hmm. and misuse. Okay. And uh, you and I spoke uh, a little bit about um, uh, so, some first responders and, and police departments that are starting to carry um, a drug on them that reverses the effects um, of an overdose with, with pretty good success, uh, is my understanding. It doesn't appear that this is uh, widely used, um, and one of them is, is called naloxone. Um, could you sort of explain what naloxone is and uh, how prevalent it is um, in terms of uh, its use by uh, law enforcement or first responders? What, how it works is it's, now if I can get my terminology correct, is it's an antagonist, and what it does is that it counteracts the effect of the narcotic on the individual, and it helps then um, improve the breathing and um, the heart rate for the individual who it's given to. It it's relatively inexpensive, and um, it's it really is determined by the policies of the of the individual of the individual communities and their whether or not it's something that they want to carry. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it would be one of those things that would be proactive. When you asked me earlier, what can community people do? Mm-hmm. This would be. Um, something that they would be very much uh, interested in lobbying for. Uh-huh. Um, I also realized something that I, I don't want to neglect to say is there's another organization that's new in this area, and it's called Families Against Narcotics, and they stem from um, individuals who have lost children due to overdoses, and they have become very active. And if you go, if you go Google Families Against Narcotics, you will get the website and where they meet in the uh, Ingham County area. It's relatively new. They just started being active in October of this year or October or last year. And they, this is, these are the kinds of things that they're trying to do and get the word out. Mm-hmm. So that would be something I'd recommend for anyone who is interested. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you see sort of a, maybe a lack of uh, awareness on the part of police agencies or, or communities in general, just just not maybe realizing that this is out there? I think that some of it is a real, you can get a real helpless feeling when you have um, all of this in front of you. And so, you know, what what can we do and where can we go and feeling 
kind of lost and alone, particularly the family members. And so that's where the support can come in. And for law enforcement, that's the nice thing about the Families Against Narcotics because there are uh, members of the law enforcement who are a part of this organization as well. So it's a, a good place to begin. Mm-hmm. And uh, to sort of wrap things up here, um, uh, the, t- the types of people that um, uh, this this uh, this substance is affecting uh, it appears to be a wide range. Uh, it's now starting with high schoolers um, and, and moving beyond maybe just urban areas like it was several decades ago and, and maybe into more uh, rural areas. But uh, how, how would you sort of characterize uh, the, the, you know, the type of folks who come in and some, you know, their background and who come in seeking treatment? Well, one thing about addiction in general and, and heroin and opiates is that it um, has no boundaries. It will go to anyone, anywhere, anytime, any age, any racial, ethnic group, um, any community. So it's not um, how we generally stereotype. This can be upper class, middle class, uh, lower economic. Uh, and if we say, for example, we just recently lost um, Philip. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was um, an excellent actor and definitely not uh, lower socioeconomic. Mm-hmm. So as you can see, it, it strikes everywhere. Yeah. Well, so uh, it, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so it, um, where you're located and where your income is is not necessarily going to save you or your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, un- unfortunately, we're out of time, uh, but uh, we've been speaking with Mary uh, Cronquist of uh, Community Mental Health. Thanks very much for taking the time. Oh, no problem. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, managing editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Uh, before we move on to our next guest, uh, I just want to tell listeners that uh, initially we had plan- we had scheduled um, to have uh, Chris Shirell on, on the show this evening. He's the president and CEO of... Uh, uh, Fresh Time Farmers Market, which is a Phoenix-based grocer, it's an up-and-coming grocer. But uh, we uh, b- broke the news in today's City Pulse that Fresh Time is going to be the next tenant in the Trowbridge Plaza to replace Goodrich's Shoprite, which has been there for over 45 years. It's part of a uh, it's part of a local developer's 24 million dollar plan uh, to uh, sort of revamp the Trowbridge area. Um, but you can pick up today's City Pulse to read more about that story uh, and and changes that are in store uh, for, for Trowbridge. Uh, but, uh, next up on the phone with us, uh, we've got Jeff Croft who has just launched or is in the process of launching a, um, a new theater group in greater Lansing called the, called Icarus, or excuse me, Ixion Rising, Icarus Falling. We might talk a little bit about during this, but Jeff, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, and actually, it's just Ixion, uh, the, the risings from the headline. Ah, okay. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for catching that uh, clever headline by Alan Ross. Uh, so, so tell us about Ixion and how this came together and what you hope to accomplish. Sure. Uh, well, Ixion um, uh, is, as you mentioned, you know, a, a new effort to bring uh, theater to Lansing. Um, and really, it is a culmination of having taken a few years away from the stage and realizing uh, how uh, much uh, we needed and enjoyed the uh, collaboration and the storytelling that uh, theater provides. Mm-hmm. So we're coming back, and we're going to try some new things. And uh, in this case, our current project is uh, four new one-act plays. Great. So what separates um, what you're trying to do with Ixion compared to some of the uh, some of the maybe uh, better-known theater groups in the area, Riverwalk or, or Peppermint Creek? Sure, sure. Well, um, first off, uh, you know, we're going to tend to do um, smaller productions. They're going to be, you know, uh, contemporary works that you may or may not have heard, uh, you know, of before. Uh, the others tend to pull what's just come off Broadway or, you know, you know what's been uh, uh, polished as a chestnut over the years. And uh, we're really looking at just providing a compliment that offers an alternative to a lot of the great theater that always goes on in the Lansing area. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us about The Four Disgracers, uh, which is, looks like sure. the first production of Ixion. 
It is. It is. Uh, we're currently in the development process. The Four Disgracers is actually inspired by uh, four engravings uh, by a Dutch engraver from the 16th century. And um, it features uh, four different figures from uh, mythology, Icarus, Ixion, Phaeton, and Tantalus. And so each writer, uh, you know, we've got four different writers, uh, has taken each one and has created a short play sort of meditating or exploring the different uh, messages or ideas in each myth. Okay. And uh, you have some, uh, you, you've, you've visited this topic before uh, with, with your previous theater group, uh, Icarus Falling. Um, ex- explain to listeners what Icarus Falling was and uh, what, what happened with that theater group. Sure. Uh, well, Icarus Falling uh, was a theater group that I started with a very good friend of mine, Daryl Thompson. Uh, and um, we did shows in the Lansing area for about 10 years. And uh, we did uh, over 30 productions, um, ranging from uh, a science fiction musical to, uh, again, new works that were uh, explorations of uh, a farcical hamlet to... Uh, uh, hard rocker uh, with a heroin addiction. That was a world premiere uh, from a friend of ours over in the UK, Graham Farrow. Um, and uh, honestly, it uh, really was more a matter of the uh, group itself had run its course um, I, between uh, every, everyone's other other jobs and other uh, responsibilities. It was just uh, you know time to take a step away and uh, relax and. Um, you know, focus on other things. But uh, like I said, m- many of us have reached the conclusion that uh, the excitement and the energy of actually creating and, and doing theater and, uh, you know, interacting with the audiences um, was too much to stay away from. Mm-hmm. And what would you say you learned from that experience uh, with Icarus? Sure. Uh, well, first off, um, and, and um, one of the reasons that gave us impetus to try again was that there's an audience out there. Lansing um, not only has a long history of uh, a strong history of uh, theater groups, but it has a very supportive theater community. Um, the patrons are are uh, hungry and willing to go out and uh, try new things and support new things, and uh, that really kind of provides the impetus and the energy to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, Lansing's uh, theater scene. W- would you would you uh, y- you know consider it as as something that's that's ever evolving, or do you see sort of a uh, a built in base here in the community that that there's always going to be you know a certain number of of productions? But uh, I, I don't know if you if you've been in other communities and, and could compare it or contrast it. But uh, sure. L- Lansing's theater scene, how how do you you know sort of characterize it? Um, historically, it's been you know far more vibrant than a community of this size would typically have, um, both by talent, but also just the number of groups interested in doing theater and telling stories and you know and creating that communal experience. Um, certainly, the last few years have seen um, the loss of a number of groups, uh, not just if, but um, Stormfields and a number of other groups have you know gone. Uh, gone into the annals of history at this point, but typically Lansing um, varies between 15 to 20 performing groups within 20 minutes of the capital, Um, and they range from community theater to educational theater to professional theater and all all the things in between. So I think it's always been and continues to be a really surprisingly vibrant community. Mm-hmm. And and what do you think makes a theater group successful and, and have some lasting power? I, you know, I think uh, obviously economics is a big thing, but also um, uh, a, a solid vision and and a commitment. Uh, I think you take a look at the vision that uh, the community circle players has shown in creating Riverwalk, which is of course now over twenty years old. To um, you know, a newer group like Chad's Peppermint Creek, which has done a great job of continuing to uh, forge forward and create some high-quality theater. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, let, let's talk a little bit uh, about about yourself, Jeff. Uh, did, now, I know you've uh, been involved directing some plays, and, and you're behind forming a new group, but uh, do you do some acting as well? I have. Um, I, I generally uh, prefer to leave it to the folks who uh, really thrive and enjoy themselves on stage. I've acted uh, locally um, uh, 
directed, uh, again, uh, probably t- probably about t- 30 some odd plays I've directed and I've appeared in um, a few dozen. Yeah, uh, probably about two dozen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you prefer to be behind the scenes a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, then I get to watch just the brilliance of all the great actors I've had the opportunity to work with and watch them create something that is more than what I gave them to start from. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of fun and it's very energizing. Yeah. Be- beyond the the four disgracers, do you have any uh, directing or acting plans beyond that? Uh, beyond the four disgracers, well, we're doing the stage readings now. We're looking to take it into a full production um, April and May. And then uh, we'll be announcing the full season for the 2014-2015 season um, during the four disgracers run. All right. And uh, are the um, the stage readings open to the public? They are free and open to the public. The next one is on the 24th in the Arena Theater in MSU's Auditorium Building. Um, then we'll be returning to the Capital Area District Library March 10th for the final stage reading. Uh, everyone's encouraged to come provide their feedback. Uh, we had some good feedback on Monday when we did our first reading. Um, the authors have been really uh, generous and open to uh, input, and they continue to evolve their scripts. All right, and it, and it looks like uh, there's a website uh, if people want to get some more information. There is, ixiontheater.com. That's uh, theater spelled with an R-E. Or they can uh, visit us on social media, either uh, Facebook or Google+. Plus. Uh, just search Ixion, um, and they'll be able to find us in both cases. All right, excellent. Well, uh, Jeff Croft, who's uh, uh, the founder of the Ixion Ensemble, a new theater group here in Lansing, thanks uh, very much for being on City Pulse. My pleasure. You're listening to Impact Exposure on You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, managing editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. And next up on the phone with us is uh, Kyle Malin of the of Mears, the Capital Newsletter. We're going to talk some issues going on uh, in the state legislature and beyond. Uh, Kyle, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure, Andy. Great. Well, uh, it looks like uh, some of the main business uh, before the legislature uh, lately is getting to work on uh, the governor's proposed uh, budget. Um uh, where, I guess, where, where do things stand with that right now? And I, I think after that, I, we're going to talk a little bit about the issue over tax breaks and, and how to spend uh, some surplus money. Yeah, and you know what? It's interesting that uh, after years of, of um, hand-wringing and consternation about what we're going to cut out of a budget, now we're actually in a situation where we're going to have some arm wrestling as to what we're going to do with some extra money that we have. And uh, I think uh, that's that's what the legislature is going to have to um, have to come to terms with here. And I think top on the agenda here is what we're going to do with roads, and not necessarily road funding for 2015, but what we're going to do with uh, any surplus money we have for this current year in 2014. I think that's one of the big questions that uh, lawmakers are asking themselves right now. They're getting calls from their county road uh, associations and their cities and their municipalities. Uh, They've run out of salt. Uh, They have uh, way over budget with uh, the folks running the trucks. Their trucks need repairs. They've had um, way over budget on gas because of all the plowing that they've had to do. They're going to need some extra money from the state, Andy, and right now there isn't any uh, in there and kind of wrapped into the governor's budget. So that's, I think, the first thing they got to deal with. I think after that, though, I think there is a real fluid question going on right now about what kind of tax rebate or tax um, return uh, we can expect out of this Republican legislature. Obviously, um, um, there is some question about whether we want to have any kind of tax uh, cut in the income tax be a long-term thing, kind of a permanent change. Uh, The governor would rather not do that. He's looking at expanding the homestead exemption credit and actually giving people checks in the mail if you make under $50,000 a year or less. Uh, the legislative leaders, I don't think, are necessarily opposed to it, but like I said, there's conservatives in this uh, Republican legislature who would really like to drop this tax rate down from 4.25 to uh, 3.9 or 4.05, something that would have some lasting impact. 
but obviously there's um, budget implications to doing that, and that's why the governor has um, balked at that suggestion up to now. Yeah, and uh, you know, Democrats have argued that uh, the reason we have this surplus is because it was taken uh, from the backs of of uh, K through twelve in education. Is it how much room is there uh, for some of this money to go back to schools? Well, I think some of it will go back to schools. And, you know, the governor called for 3% more going back to K-12. through I think that that's probably the number they're going to end up with, and I say that just because I think there are other needs out there, and I just mentioned roads as, as an example, um, that will take precedent over anything additional over 3%. And so I think that uh, the schools will get more. I think that uh, the Democrats will support that. And uh, I think one thing that uh, I think will be interesting to see is how much of this goes back in the form of the foundation allowance, like that pot of money that schools get. And, and if lawmakers are able to um, change course on what the governor has done all along with K-12 education funding, and that is actually take the money and pay off the retirement pension piece of it first and then give money to the schools. You know, it doesn't seem like a big difference, but uh, that's one of the things that Democrats and, and some folks in the school community have pointed to is saying, you know, we're actually getting less money from the state than we did when Snyder was in office. And while we appreciate him paying off that um, our retirement uh, piece and that obligation that we have to pay for, uh, we'd really rather get the money up front and then we'll take care of it. Now, there are some folks in the education community who just rather the governor take that off the top so you get kind of a split there, but I, I'm I'm curious to see how the legislature handles that. Yeah, and the, there seemed to be some disagreement between the governor and and Democrats uh, over whether uh, his his education funding has has reached a net increase uh, since mm-hmm. he took office. But what's the what's the real story there? Well, it, it, the real story is is that you've got a lot of numbers, and you can make a good argument. Uh, for either side, depending on what numbers you want to use. You know, it's, it, and that's kind of the reality of the situation, Andy. I mean, when you take a look at um, the amount of money that actually goes into education, you just want to add everything up and spit out a number, I mean, the numbers don't lie. The governor has given more to education, and at the level of, um, you know, if this recommendation goes through a billion dollars since taking office, but, like I just told you, um, you take a look at individual school-by-school basis. In some communities, the school populations have shrunk significantly, and so their, pu- per, or their per pupil allowance that they get from the state has obviously gone down because there's fewer students in the classroom, and there hasn't been any type of remedy in these budgets to take care of that. So some schools have gotten less money, and that's not a... Um, you know, that's not a rare situation. So, you know, there's a lot of problems with the um, the school funding just in general. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that argument about whether the governor has uh, cut money to education or given more money to uh, education is going to be a PR battle that will be waged from now until November. And I think it will really ultimately be decided by people just looking around their own district and making up their own mind are our schools better off than they were before? Yeah. Well, you mentioned November, and since we're uh, in a new year now, we can officially say that we're in an election year. And yeah. uh, some some say we're seeing that, you know, the, the politicking and maneuvering taking place already. Uh, the governor uh, is in as part of a page one story in the New York Times today about uh, close governor's races this year. Um, how are things shaping up for uh, the Democrat, Mark Schauer? Well, I think right now it's just a name ID thing for him. You know, mm-hmm. the Democratic Governors Association uh, did put a million-dollar ad buy out there that's uh, going on right now and will continue until President's Day. And that is supposed to really boost his name ID with people and get his name on the map. You know, really the campaign hasn't necessarily started in earnest. I think both candidates are still very much in the fundraising stage and feeling out process. Um, there hasn't been really a lot of direct contact, you know, a swing, a swing here, a swing there, mm-hmm. but really nothing serious. That I don't think voters are really engaged yet in the governor's race, and I don't think they're really interested in getting engaged until we're much further down the line. Mm-hmm. And so for Shower, you know, the polls show him, you know, with a, you know, down double digits, but that's because few people know him. Uh, you know, in that 14, 13 percentage uh, range, 
you know, and I think what he's got to hope for is that that doesn't get any larger, that Snyder doesn't crest over a 50% approval rating, and that if he can just keep it close until uh, after the primary and he can put a lot more money into a campaign and a message and then start narrowing that gap, I think uh, he'll be in a good position. Right now he's just got to hope that he gets more name out there. The governor doesn't crest over 50% um, because then it will appear like he's getting buried and uh, he may find the money dry up uh, come August. Yeah, and uh, looking over at the uh, U.S. Senate race between Gary, Gary Peters and Terry Lynn, Republican challenger Terry Lynn Land, how are things shaping up over there? Well, I think that that, that race is in a little bit of a uh, kind of the same situation that we, we do see a lot of fundraising. You know, Terry Land has run very much an interesting campaign in that she hasn't done the the stops around the state and, and uh, you know, done a lot of public availability. In fact, um, you know, unless you're a Republican activist, you've never seen her because she hasn't done a campaign stop yeah. of any sort or a media scrum or anything. And yet she's leading in the polls, which is just kind of hilarious. And I, but I think that, too, is a name ID situation, you know, because she was the Secretary of State. Her name was plastered. Uh, you know, on the Secretary of State's offices for eight years when you had to go renew your license and your and your plates and so forth. So people know her name. You know, her, her name ID is around 50%, whereas Gary Peters, outside of Southeast Michigan, uh, not a lot of people know him. I mean, he ran for AG back in 2002 but didn't win, was lottery commissioner for a couple years, but that's been, you know, several years ago, too. So his his um, task is to get out and meet some more people. You know, I think both candidates in this case are going to have um, uh, significant resources and sufficient resources, and I think that one's just going to be a slugfest, quite frankly. I think the Republicans actually see an opportunity here in Michigan where they didn't before, and I think they're going to get activated. I think at first they might, the, the money was on Gary Peters, you know, maybe a 70% chance he would win. I think it's getting closer to 50-50 now, Andy, hmm. and this one's going to be a slugfest. All right. Well, I'm sure uh, you guys at Mears will be keeping an eye on it. Uh, unfortunately, Kyle, we are out of time, but thanks again for uh, coming back on City Pulse. I appreciate the invite. Take care. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Uh, let's turn now to a pre-recorded interview from our TV show that will be airing on Sunday, uh, Sunday morning here in Lansing on uh, My18. You can uh, find a more comprehensive listing of the showtimes in uh, today's City Pulse. But we spoke with uh, MSU Professor of Jazz Studies and Musicology, Ken Prouty, uh, on the fr- on the top of the show, and then uh, we have audio from our visit to a uh, shr- a Beatles shrine uh, down in Diamonddale that's uh, owned by Jim Walker and uh, Vicky Specter Walker, who are huge Beatles collectors. But uh, this is all uh, in celebration of the band's uh, 50th anniversary of coming to the states. Uh, so let's get into that interview now. This is City Pulse Newsmakers, a weekly look at the issues and the people behind them in Greater Lansing. Brought to you by City Pulse, Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. And now, here's your host, editor and publisher, Burl Schwartz. Good morning. On a Sunday night 50 years ago this week, America tuned in to the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, you'd be quite a trivia expert if you can remember who else was on the show, but we certainly remember a set of guests, the Beatles. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, their impact on America uh, with uh, a professor of musicology at Michigan State University, Ken Prouty. Welcome to the show. Thanks. And Bill Castanier of uh, City Pulse, who wrote our cover story this week on the impact of the Beatles on local residents, including a couple we're going to meet later who turned their home into a, Be- a Beatles museum. Professor Prouty, let's... Uh, start with you. Uh, you actually teach the Beatles as part of a course on pop music. Uh, yes, I do. I uh, devote, uh, let's just say, not insignificant amount of time to talking about the impact of, of the Beatles and what they meant for American music. I, is there anyone else quite like them in the last 50 years? Uh, well, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, they were a really singular 
group in in many ways and in a lot of ways really kind of set set the the, the standard mm -hmm. for what later groups were going to do and uh, are they still uh, impacting music today? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, I was just mentioning before we uh, began this morning, I, I live very close to here, was walking here, and as I was walking here, there was a car parked uh, beside the road with a radio playing that was playing uh, Live and Let Die by Paul McCartney. <laughs> um, yeah, not specifically the Beatles, but I think it does go to indicate that you know, even half century, 40 years or whatever later, we are still so attracted to this music. It still sounds like it was recorded yesterday in and some of, ways. Of course, they had to be influenced too. Who influenced them? Oh, they really, one of the great things about the Beatles is that they absorbed so many influences and they were very heavily influenced by American rhythm and blues, rock and roll, blues, even country groups. There was actually a, a, a pretty big scene in Liverpool, which is a, a great port city. And port cities like New Orleans and, and New York always seem to have these really eclectic and diverse music scenes and Liverpool was one of the places in Great Britain that was would be the first to get a lot of records coming in and so you had um, young aspiring teenage musicians like John Lennon and Paul McCartney who were hearing Little Richard who were hearing Elvis Presley who were hearing Buddy Holly and trying to do their own versions of these and in fact a lot of the early recordings that the uh, the group that would become the Beatles made in the late 50s were covers of some of these uh, tunes. There's a great recording of uh, the band recording Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day. Um, it sounds like, I, I'm not, I can't remember exactly where it was made, but it sounds like it was recorded in someone's living room. Hmm. You know, it, it, in those days it was often the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones. Yeah, but the Rolling Stones yeah. uh, were also influenced by some of these things. Oh, absolutely. Right? The Rolling Stones uh, really very heavily influenced by particularly blues artists, mm -hmm. people like Muddy Waters who had gone to Europe, who had gone to England and toured, and really saw themselves in some ways as extensions of, of that tradition. So the reason, again, we're, we're talking about the Beatles today is that 50 years ago, I guess uh, tonight, uh, Sunday, February 9th, uh, was uh, their uh, debut on the Ed Sullivan yes. Show. And, Bill, uh, who else was on the show then? Well, I can tell you someone that I know very well that was on the show and is included in the story. His name is Terry McDermott. Mm -hmm. He won the only gold medal at the 1964 Olympics. He was from my high school. That's mm -hmm. how I knew him. Uh, <laughs> but And we knew he was going to be on the show, so we had a double reason to watch it. But when he came back uh, from Innsbruck, Ed Sullivan basically got in touch with him and said, I'd like you on the TV show. I'll introduce you amongst the guests. But the KG Ed Sullivan had the idea because Terry McDermott was a barber in his private life. So what he did is he posed Terry McDermott doing a fake haircut of Paul McCartney. And that photo ran in every newspaper mm -hmm. in America the next day. He was pretty clever. I mean, uh, Ed Sullivan looked a little slow, but I don't think he was. Yeah. <laughs> he was. He was a pretty smart man. So that's why... Terry McDermott was on. There was also um, a woman named, I think her name is Telly O'Shea, who did a very terrible kind of vaudeville kind <laughs> of singing program. But she was from Britain. And then the cast of Oliver was on. So and a very British show. It w and I think it was coincidence. Yeah. I mean, he didn't plan that. It was a very coincidence, very British show, right? Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. go ahead. Uh, well, that was that's a great. wonderful thing about Ed Sullivan's show, too. You just never know what mm -hmm. you were going to see on that show. The, the, the wildly eclectic kinds of things that he would program were really, really fantastic. We really don't have anything like that today. No, he had a How juggler, a magician yeah. on that show, a contortionist. Yeah. It was it was pretty yeah. amazing. What? Uh, how did the Beatles uh, end up on the Ed Sullivan show? It's a really fascinating story. Um, Beatlemania, as we think of it in England, really begins you know in, in, in kind of late 1962 after they had um, hired Brian Epstein in early 62 as their manager, who then hooked them up with George Martin from EMI Parlophone Records. Martin really, really shaped the musical identity of the group, and it was that early fall of 62 when the lineup that we know as the Fab Four finally came together um, when Ringo Starr joined the band, replacing Pete Best, their uh, original drummer. Um, early 63, they started having a string of hits in uh, the UK, and by late spring, early summer, they were the biggest thing there. Um, spent something like 30 weeks on the top of the pop charts, which is unheard of at that point. Um, in the fall of 63, there was a, uh, a CBS producer in England who caught, caught wind of this, how you 
couldn't not catch wind of this if you were in England at this point, and uh, did a little feature on the group and um, with a, so at Brian Epstein's urging and had sent it back to uh, the United States to CBS. Um, and Ed Sullivan sort of gets wind of this, books the band in, I, I believe it was early November of 63, when he actually booked the band, not really knowing anything about them at this point. This piece that they did in England for CBS ran on the CBS Morning News with Mike Wallace on November 22nd, 1963. Mm. Um, it was scheduled to run that night. Um, however, November 22nd, 1963 was also the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And so the piece was pulled, got shelled for a few weeks. And in early December, Walter Cronkite decides to pull this back off the shelf, sort of a feel-good story to lift the nation's spirits. Um, they, they run this, and all of a sudden, teenage girls start calling their record stations saying, do you have any Beatles records? People start going in the record stores saying, do you have any Beatles records? And a few people did. There were some bootleg records that had, got, had been brought over from England. The re- Capitol Records, which is uh, EMI subsidiary, was actually really resistant. Kind of figured British people didn't know how to play rock <laughs> and roll. But eventually, this critical mass starts to build up. And so by the time that the Ed Sullivan performance happened in February of 64, they had gone from being just this group that Ed Sullivan had kind of heard of to being literally the biggest pop act in the world. And in fact, there's a, a great story that the, that the band tells about when, on February 7th of 64, they landed at the airport in New York. The crowd was so big that they thought that the president for somebody else was run, coming through the airport at the same time. It was all for them. And you can very easily find uh, video on the internet of, of the band in New York with these just massive crowds of people trying to break into their car. And policemen, mounted policemen, sort of having to go along the car to keep the, keep the crowds back. Um, but it was really a, a singular evening um, to have so many people tuned in to that show to see this band. And American music has not been the same since. And I think you could say music around the world has not been the same since. And, you know, uh, it, one of the things that's amazing to me about the Beatles is they really weren't together that long. I they mean, we weren't. got groups from then, right. the Rolling Stones being one of them, who are still together. Right. Uh, how, when did they break up? In the, in the early 70s, it was sort of a, a gradual process of, of breaking up. Uh, eventually, around 1970, 1971, they start recording solo albums. And that was kind of the signal that it was over. But it was a process that had really started um, in a few years earlier, maybe around 1967 or so, the members of the band starting to drift apart, of tensions starting to develop within the band. And, you know, they they started to develop these very strong musical personalities that I think at the end of the day, it was really inevitable Hmm. that when you get a group of people who are that talented, that those personalities are going to, to start to come out in the way that their music changed. If you look at um, something like the White Album, which is this massive two-disc album, um, it's all over the place musically. You have kind of the feel-good reggae of Obla Di Obla Da. You've got um, sort of straight-up rock and roll, back to the USSR. You have the kind of almost transcendental meditation of a song like Dear Prudence. And you really hear the distinct personalities of each of the members in a way that you didn't hear in their early music, where they were much more of a cohesive unit with a group identity. Uh, Bill, uh, tell us uh, something that stands out to you from the research you did about local people in this. Well, there was uh, several people who were able to connect with the Beatles in very unusual ways. For example, uh, Margot Landa Keelhorn was living in Evanston, Illinois with her father, single parent. He was very strict. He wouldn't let her listen to the music or buy any music. And, but she had a little transistor. There were 10 million transistors sold the Christmas before. A lot of people first heard the Beatles on a transistor. So mm-hmm. she goes to New York City to visit her uncle on her summer break. Her uncle happens to be the best friend of Bobby Bonus, who is their road manager. Bobby calls him up and says, how would you like to go see the Beatles? So her and her aunt went to see the Beatles in New York. And she sits next to Jackie DeShannon on the bus out there. <laughs> and J- Jackie DeShannon was probably 21 or 22 at the time, but she was incredibly nice to her. So they get to stand just off stage with them. And she was a 13-year-old girl watching the Beatles That's off stage. Mm-hmm. And Brian Epp, she didn't get to meet the Beatles because they were just in and out like a flash. But she saw them like 20 feet away. 
But Brian Epstein came up to her and gave gave her this giant floral display that had been given the Beatles, and she took it home with her on plane. And she said she slept under it was under her mattress <laughs> for several years until it disintegrated. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell us about the couple in uh, Eaton Rapids. Who are they? And we're, okay, it's uh, it's in, in Diamonddale. Diamond we're about to okay, meet them. Yep, it's Vicky Specter Walker and Jim Walker. Now they connected online. Jim was selling Beatle merchandise from Scotland. She bought a George Harrison magazine called, it was a mag, British magazine called Mojo. She buys it from him. Ultimately, he comes over here to visit her. They get married. Well, they combine their collections, which uh, I think Vicki had started around 19, well, she had actually started in junior high when she first saw him. She kept things. But she really started collecting in 1990. All right, well, we, let's meet that couple right now. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. Let's get back to our interview on the Beatles' uh, 50th anniversary of coming to the States. I stayed in love with the Beatles all my life. Um, They influenced, obviously, how I thought about the world, how I thought about the Vietnam War, how I dressed. Everything about my life was actually affected by them. And I started collecting Beatles memorabilia. Um, I still had my little junior high notebook, kept things in storage for 50 years. Articles I clipped out of the newspapers and magazines. Um, One thing led to another. Pins, anything that had the Beatles on it, I found and I stashed them away. I was born in Glasgow, which was a, a big shipbuilding region, so just everywhere you went, you just heard Beatles music, you know. It, it was just something new, you know. I mean, all this screaming, you know, and girls chasing after the Beatles, you know. I mean, obviously, being a man at that time, it was something that you hoped would one day happen to you, you know. <laughs> people chasing you, but, uh, yeah, it was just an amazing thing to see, you know, how people... The, the reaction, you know, and the, uh, that people had to the Beatles, you know, everybody just loved the Beatles, you know, and it wasn't just the young people. I mean, every, I mean, I can remember. I mean, everybody's parents loved the Beatles as well. They were, were you know, everybody loved them. You know. But the Beatles being a, a success throughout the world, it made you, it did made you, made you feel proud to be British, you know. And not only the Beatles, but you had the whole. The whole Mersey, they called it the Mersey Beat sound at the time. There were lots of other bands coming out of Liverpool, you know. Um, it was, it was, uh, yeah, and it made you proud to be British at the time, yeah. If you actually look at them closely, they're actually flexi discs. And you see the hole in the middle and you can see the grooves there. And these were, and in, in before the, the rock and roll music, not only Beatles music, was, was banned in the communist countries. And this was one of the ways they smuggled music into the country. And these postcards were actually flexi-discs. These particular ones are from Poland. Mm-hmm. But all the communist countries, um, Beatles music was banned, you know. Yeah, I had various sort of a collections. I used to collect old music mag- magazines. And I looked on eBay to have a look at filling in part of missing parts of my collection. And I uh, started to buy things on eBay, and when I seen the prices that people were paying, I then started to buy to sell. Um, and I started having a look about at different things, you know, and um, I started accumulating collections, buying bulk collections from people and reselling individual items. And um, I just really got into it in a, bit, in a bigger way than I thought I ever would, you know. And I can honestly say um, that George Harrison brought my husband and I together. There was a gentleman in the UK that put a George Harrison music magazine, British music magazine, up for sale that was never available in our country. And of course, I bid on it, and of course, I won. Well, he immediately wrote me and said, you know, this is a set of four British music magazines on the Beatles. Are you interested in the other three? Well, of course I was. And he offered them to me. And then he said, 
he had emailed me, do you collect Beatles memorabilia? Yes, I do. Are you interested in more Beatles magazines? Yes, I was. So I bought more Beatles magazines. We basically started writing each other. We had a common interest. And um, first it was once a month. He called me on Christmas Eve. And then he started writing me once a week, once a day, twice a day. And pretty soon, three years go past, and we decided that he should pay me a visit. Jim came here in May of 2009, um, and he saw the collection uh, that was unpacked, and he saw what I still had packed up. He thought and thought and thought and said, I have an idea. I started to get to thinking, you know, well, we've got so much stuff there and a lot of it was still in boxes and I thought we really need to to get this on display. Another thing that prompted that was that any time we had people come visit us here, we spent most of the time showing them around the collection, you know. So I thought, well, let's get it organized, let's get it properly displayed um, so that we can see what we've got as well because at one point we didn't know what we had and we had duplicated items and we were, in some cases, we were buying things that we already had, you know. So it was important that we got we got it on display to see what we actually had. And um, it just grew from there. I mean, uh, to when I first came here, I think we had two display cases. I think now we've got about 11 or 12. Um, it just grew from that point, you know. And uh, we had an open house and our friends just went crazy. And uh, the local paper came out three times. It's become a sort of a full-time job for me rather than a part-time job actually looking after the collection as well, you know. Once I've been actually cataloging the collection for over four years now and I'm still not finished. <laughs> there are parts of the collection which is still remain unseen. Um, I only recently catalogued the albums that we have, the Beatles albums we have from all over the world and bootleg albums, we don't actually have those on display, we just don't have the room to display them all. Um, the ties, they were, that was quite interesting when it came to catalogue the ties because whilst cataloguing the, the whole collection I have to photograph every, indiv every individual piece uh, and the ties, that, that was quite interesting. Um, Another area we have which we haven't actually got on display is we have hundreds of Beatles posters. Um, I've not actually got to them yet. And when, when you do come to actually catalogue something, find out what you've got, where you got it from, and then sometimes it can be surprising how much it's actually worth, you know, at the end of the day. I often say to people, something's only worth what somebody else is prepared to pay for it, you know. Some people can say to you, well, this is worth $2,000. It's only worth $2,000 if somebody's prepared to pay that for it, you know. Um, there are also, unfortunately, like anything else, when you when you, you have val valuable items, people that are counterfeits, of, you know, and copies, you know, which you have to be careful of, you know. This is known as the Butcher Album, and it was released in 1966, and sent to record stores just, um, just in America. And some of the record stores thought it was not tasteful. And so the Capitol Records sent a recall letter. Please send the album back to us and we'll paste over it. And so this is called an unpeeled butcher album and if you look real close here you'll see the V that is Ringo's dark turtleneck and this is what's known as an unpeeled butcher album now there are people that will you can hire people that are professionals that s peel 
Butcher albums. Um, we not only have old pieces from all over the world, but we do have artist pieces. And one of my favorite pieces, and I'm looking at Paul right now, is an original oil on wood of Paul clutching his guitar. Well, I mean, you always, you always get people say, well, who's your favorite Beatle, you know? Um, I don't actually have a favorite Beatle. I, I think the Beatles are unique because it was the four people together that made the Beatles. Um, if you look at the <coughs> each individual Beatle after the breakup, although they've all had relatively different amounts of success, on their own, it, it never came anywhere near the success they had when the four of them were together. And I think that's what made the Beatles was just that mix of those four people. You know. The Beatles are a one-of-a-kind group, and I don't believe that any other group will ever come around in our lifetime that will impact how we played music, how we dressed, how we thought about one another. Um, yes, there were drugs. Um, our entire culture, the war, peace, one another, they influenced everything. And uh, they set in motion everything for the other bands, uh, the Dave Clark Five, Jerry and the Pacemakers. You talk about the um, people making music now. They still say that Paul influenced, influenced me. Uh, Ringo's drumming did. They've left a lasting impression. Even with young children, um, we've had people from all different age groups, 8-year-olds to 80-year-olds, come through our collection. And they've touched everyone somehow. A lot of people forget that the Beatles were only together for eight years, really. It's not a very long time. Um, they only actually officially produced 12 albums um, in the UK. Um, to put that into context, Yoko Ono has actually released more albums than the Beatles released. Um. <laughs> and you have prototypes, George with a mustache, George without a mustache, you've got octopuses, I mean walruses, excuse me, mm -hmm. and then you've got um, Paul in two different jackets. If you send in several of their pull tops, mm -hmm. they send you a cassette of the Beatles, but they forgot to ask the Beatles permission. <laughs> so that was only out for a couple weeks, and they've had to pull that. They just set the pace. The Beatles set the pace with not only the music, but with music contracts, how um, items were sold that pertained to them, whether it was uh, little uh, pencil cases or bobblehead dolls. I mean, you look at a group like KISS, and how commercial they are, and how vague and lost Brian Epstein was. He had no idea what could have been utilized um, monetarily-wise with the Beatles and how commercial he could have made them. I, they just set the pace and for a lot of future things for groups and individual uh, performers. This was a definitely a learning experience. I think what it's not something I've learned, it's just something that you begin to realize more and more is just the effect and the impact that the Beatles have had on music. Um, I think, it, it, I definitely think, don't think there'll ever be another Beatles, you know. Um, and there's rarely a day goes by that you, that you don't hear a Beatles song, you know. I mean, if you have a radio on or you're in a shopping mall or wherever you are, there's, it's rare, very rarely that you go, go through a day without hearing a Beatles song somewhere, you know. Um, even when you look at what they call the supergroups who have come since the Beatles, I mean, like your Led Zeppelin, I know the, 
the Rolling Stones are still going, people like The Who and that from the same era, but none of them have had the same impact that the Beatles have had on, on music and there, there just won't ever be another Beatles, you know. Anybody's welcome to come and see the collection. Um, it's by appointment only. Um, yeah, we are members of the Lansing Tourist Convention. You can get details on their website. Um, you can call and book an appointment in advance. Um, we can cater for small groups, not too many people at a time, but we can cater for small groups of people or just individuals. Um, where it's people are usually surprised when they do come and visit is how much stuff we have here so anybody who would like to come over to um, recommend that they allow you know two to three hours for the visit there's a lot to see all right well uh, bill thank you and thanks to zach's weifler who uh, is an msu student who did the uh, video and the editing of, uh, of that piece. I want to thank Professor Ken Prouty from Michigan State for being with us, Bill Castanier from City Pulse for being with us. You can read more about the Beatles in uh, this week's City Pulse. Thanks for watching. See you next week. That's our show for the evening. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Mary Cronquist of Community Mental Health, Kyle Malin of the Mears Newsletter, and Jeff Croft of the new theater group uh, Ixion Ensemble. I'm Andy Belaskovitz. Uh, you've been listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. Take care. We'll see you next week. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89FM.